Welcome to A Canadian Investing in the U.S., a podcast and YouTube channel focused on Canadians buying real estate with host Glenn Sutherland. Welcome to a new episode of Canadian Investing in the U.S. with Glenn Sutherland. This week, my guest is Chris McAvoy, uh, back again. And um, we are going to be having Chris back uh, a lot more often because he is a wealth of knowledge. And I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn from this. Uh, before we get started, Chris, you want to give everyone a bit of an intro to yourself and who you are and your company? Yeah, so my name is Christopher McAvoy. I'm a partner at Leap ACT. Uh, we're a cloud-based cross-border tax firm. We specialize in Canada and the US. Um, and even within that specialization, um, I'm sort of niched in on real estate. So our our number one thing is Canadians investing in the US uh, real estate. Um, although we do have a very, uh, very high percentage of, let's say, US citizens living in Canada or Canadian businesses that are moving their business into the US or vice versa, um, as well as people who are uh, emigrating or immigrating one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris is my accountant, full disclosure. And um, uh, yeah, maybe I won't. I don't need to go into more disclosures. Anyway, so I just want to let you guys know that we are recording this in uh, mid-February 2024, maybe mid-early February 2024. Um, these things completely change um, over time. And that's one of the reasons some of this, these topics are being recovered because um, there's new legislation. There's new things that have changed all the time. And um, if you're listening to this in 26, 2026, 2028, you know, 2050 in the future, um, it could be completely different. <laughs> and I'll try to do my best to try and take down episodes as stuff becomes irrelevant, but it's going to be really hard for me when we're already at th over 300 episodes. But anyway, I just wanted to remember if you're thinking of this, um, we're just talking about what's currently happening. Um, if you'd see the episode date is old you know, look for a newer episode or even reach out to Chris or myself to, um, to, to make sure you're, you're doing the right thing. Cause things, things do change. Well, let's start off by, uh, you know, um, you get lots of people to call you about stuff. Um, what are some things not to do? Yeah. So I, I would say that, um, just like many things in life, there are a few right ways to do it and a lot of wrong ways to do it. Um, so, Oftentimes when I'm having meetings with uh, new entrepreneurs, um, you know, oftentimes the, there's a bit of a penchant to try to save some money on uh, legal fees and entity uh, creation and so on, uh, which I do appreciate. Um, and so usually there are one or two structures that work well and then many that don't. Um, there are a couple simpler ones and a few more complex ones. Um, but I find that oftentimes... Um, in doing their due diligence, people are asking me, well, why don't we do it this way? Why don't we do it that way? And so on. So I figure I would just go through a list of those here. Yep. Um, so the most common one is, can I just buy a, a property in my personal name uh, in the US? So the answer is you certainly can. Um, you know, it's not illegal or anything, but um, it's not really optimal uh, for the following two reasons. So number one is there's absolutely no liability protection whatsoever. Um, if you don't have it in any sort of corporate or partnership structure. And the second problem with that is uh, you'll have to deal with what's known as FERPTA, uh, which is a uh, withholding tax uh, that applies to non-residents. So like Canadian residents, for example. So let's say you bought a condo in Florida in your personal name and you sold it. What's going to happen at time of sale is the IRS is going to withhold 15% uh, 
Uh, and then you'll have to file a U.S. return to get that back when you declare your capital gains and so on. Um, so if that's a situation you're already in, my firm can definitely help you do those U.S. tax filings, help you get back some of that FERPA withholding. It's by no means a final tax. Um, it's basically designed to force people to declare their capital gains and file if they want some of those funds back. Right? Um, yeah. We can also help you get an well, ITIN. Well, before that, before we go too far, I'll jump in there a little bit too. And one thing about the, the FERPTA also, if you um, that's 15% of the sale price, not profit. Because I've had that question. They think it's 15% of the profit they made on it. But they, they the title company or the attorney does not determine that. They just take 15% of the entire. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if the sale price is, you know, uh, 400000 for example, then that means they're going to withhold... Uh, uh, <laughs> you should have done a hundred thousand. You shouldn't have made a nice About, Yeah, well, let's let's say a typical sales price, right? Four hundred thousand. That means they're taking sixty thousand uh, dollars and sending it straight to the IRS, and then you file a return and try to get that back. And that also is a very slow process. Um, you would have to wait until tax filing time, uh, and then it takes a minimum six months. And I've seen these take up to eighteen months uh, to successfully resolve, uh, depending on whether or not there was issues with the slips when they were filed and so on. So you could be waiting, you know, a year, 18 months, minimum six to eight months for, uh, you know, a relatively large check. So that's extremely inconvenient. And when you're filing these, um, it's not like during like, because the way I had it in my head was that you're doing this during tax season. So this does, is this just whenever it happens or do you like file it in your, you know, typical, you know, March, April sort of time frame? So it would be tax season. Yeah. Uh, so, so say you bought this in, say you sold your property in May, you got to wait all the way until tax season to file this. And then it takes them another six months. You're That's a long free loan you're giving to the IRS. Absolutely. Um, I was I was just about to say exactly that. The worst case scenario was you sell this thing on January 2nd or something. And then, you know, you're going to be waiting till the following August, uh, potentially to get your money back. So you could be almost like two years full cycle, depending on how quickly the IRS is moving. Yeah, um, no, and that's a huge tip. And um, I actually had that happen to me in real life, not uh, with FERPTA, but with the, my parents' neighbors. They said, uh, they're like, when they found out I was a Canadian investing in the US, they're like, why would you ever do that? The government takes 15% whenever you sell. And I'm like, did you file your taxes? And they're like, what? Well, <laughs> and a lot of people just leave that money with the government. They don't ever deal with it. And it's just gone. Um, which is significant. Yeah. So if that sounds like you definitely call my office, we can go back <laughs> at least a few years um, and uh, try to help you get some of those FERPA withholdings back. Okay. Before I cut you off, you started to say something about ITINs. Yeah. So you would also need an ITIN at the time of filing if you haven't been renting it out. So our office can help you get an ITIN as well. Um, so then um, a second if we go one level up from there, some people will say, well, it's relatively common for U.S. residents to buy a property in an LLC directly, right? Yeah. So for anyone that's a U.S. tax resident, that's totally fine. Um, if you're a Canadian resident for tax purposes, that doesn't work because Canada doesn't recognize the flow-through structure of the U.S. LLC. Um, U.S. residents have this really convenient thing where they can buy a property in an LLC to get the liability protection, but then for income tax purposes, they can just take their sales and expenses, put them on their personal return. So they're getting the convenience of a personal tax filing with the corporate protection of a corporation. <clears throat> so 
Um, Maybe I should get you to explain what a flow through <coughs> is. Some people may say he just said flow through. What what does that mean? So yeah, so that that's not something that we typically have here in Canada. Um, it, the U.S. has a concept known as flow through entities, where an LLC, for example, uh, is a corporation, but the taxation works the way a sole proprietorship would work. So it just essentially the sales and expenses and the money essentially gets treated like it's your property. Um, it doesn't really matter if you put it, take it in or out. Um, there's a basically the way you become a flow through in the U.S. is by taking an election, right? You can elect to be taxed as a corporation uh, in the LLC, or you can elect to uh, do the flow through election, which means um, the the corporate property is going to be treated like your personal property, and you just declare the sales and expenses on your personal account. Uh, so Canada Canada Revenue Agency doesn't recognize that characteristic of the flow throughs. So if you buy something in an LLC in the U.S. and run a rental property out of it. Um, the U.S. will be happy enough for you to do that, but then you'll have an issue claiming your foreign tax credits here in Canada because um, they're going to say, well, as far as we're concerned, these are dividends from a foreign corporation and we're looking at what came in or what came out. Um, so let's say you owned a property in an LLC uh, and did a, did a refi and like paid yourself out. Um, that could end up potentially being treated like a foreign dividend, which are not very favorably taxed here in Canada. So so that's a that's a very very um, bad way to structure yourself as a Canadian is to own something directly in an LLC. And so um, I know that um, I might be going way off tangent, but I know even uh, when we, you and I were talking about structures, a lot of people will put LLCs into their structure and they'll put it down as um, sometimes they'll make it the GP of their um, LP or limited partnership. Or sometimes they, I've even seen them put it underneath their limited partnership or underneath their C corp to to make that uh, in a total the properties. Um, why would someone do that, and what are some of the risks to that? Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that I've created a new coaching program. I believe the new coaching program has way more value than any of the programs that have even existed in the past. What we've done is pre-recorded all the lessons so that you can work through it at your own pace, which is pretty cool. And then we're going to meet up on a regular basis to answer the questions, do deal analysis, and actually spend our time together working on things instead of spending our time learning things. I think this will make a seamless transition to buying in the United States and will help you solve a lot of your problems. If this is of interest to you, go to glensutherland.com slash coaching. I hope to help you guys invest in the United States, and I hope we provide as much value as possible. Back to the podcast. Um, so yeah, so LLCs uh, can still be used in corporate structures for Canadians. They just can't be owned directly by the individual. So having something like a limited partnership uh, own an LLC and having the LLC act as a bear trustee to purchase that property, um, that's totally fine because having the limited partnership between the Canadian individual and the LLC cleans up the tax issue, essentially, because Partnerships are always uh, pass-through entities for tax, and Canada recognizes partnerships as pass-through entities. So essentially, you, we put a tax-compliant entity between the two, and that makes Canada Revenue Agency happy. Okay. <clears throat> I've also heard something about bank accounts and that, you know, at the December 31st, you shouldn't have uh, balances in LLC accounts. Um, so that mainly comes from the way this corporate structuring in the three-tier structure works. Um, because the point of that structure is that the LLC is only a legal owner of the property, so it's going to hold the title. 
um, but it shouldn't be conducting any active business. And the goal is to not have that LLC have to file a tax return. So if there's been income, expenses, assets, and so on in there, then you're back into, well, this is actually an active item and it has to file a tax return. As opposed to if you don't do anything out of there and you just treat it as a legal owner, it would have to do its state filing to remain in existence for legal purposes. But um, if you're not doing any business out of there and you don't have any uh, money in there, then you know, you can avoid doing a tax filing, which is part of the goal of that three-tier structure, which is that the income and expense ends up being reported at the partnership level in the LP, and the LLC hopefully doesn't have to do any tax filing. But that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. And so there's a so there's another item uh, which some people may encounter in their travels, which is an S-Corp. Um, uh, so again, Canadian residents just can't use those. Um, they're not available to foreigners. Very common for U.S. Uh, residents, though. Yeah, I think uh, whenever you you have to have, I believe it's even every member has to have a social security number in order to be part of that. And because I looked into that way back seven, whenever I was starting years years ago, I was looking into that and like I couldn't couldn't pull it off. And even if you wanted to join someone else's, you couldn't join it as a Canadian. Yeah, so we don't really see these very often in our uh, neck of the woods with the Canadians investing in the U.S. and so yeah. on. The The best mechanism for doing something like a syndication or a joint venture is a partnership, yeah. um, like an, an LP. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another similar question uh, I would get, well, can I own the corp or can I own a property directly through a Canadian corporation? Um so the answer is, again, totally legal. You know, both sides of the border are happy for you to do that, but it's not really a good setup uh, for tax. F for liability, it would give you some coverage because it's in a corp, but uh, you would have, there would be two less than ideal things with that, which is uh, you'd have to deal with FERPTA again, because just because it's a corporation, a corporation is a, a legal person, right? So if it's a foreign corporation, then it's still a foreign person, right? So um, it still has to deal with FERPTA. And then the second thing is you're going to have to do a U.S. filing anyway. Um, you would have to do what's known as an 1120F uh, to uh, report your income and expense numbers to the IRS and then claim your foreign tax credits back in Canada. So that part sometimes happens with active businesses, but it's again, it's not really the optimal structure for, um, especially for avoiding FERPTA. The other thing I also wonder is just lending. Like anytime, even whenever um, I'm going through lending situations and they see that I have a whole pyramid of corporations that are owning each other, um, even that gets them tangled up. Um, when you're trying to show them, you show them an org chart and show them basically corporate documents for each of these corporations and who owns percentages and signing and everything. It gets really muddy. And um, you mix in even something that they're not familiar with or normally seeing, like <laughs> a Canadian corporation. I just, it just sounds like extra mud in the water that you probably don't need. <laughs> yeah, banks would definitely be somewhat less inclined to lend money. Uh, to a foreign corporation than they would a domestic one, for yeah. sure. So, I mean, there's, again, an additional issue there. You're right. <laughs> um, so I will make a small distinction here. Um, if someone's running an active business in the U.S., um, sometimes there are different structures. Um, this three-tiered structure where we have like LP and then a 1% GP and then an LLC owning bear title, that's really for buy and holds. 
Um, if someone is doing flips, oftentimes they can get away with a bit simpler of a structure or if somebody's doing, let's say, Airbnb arbitrage, which is a considered active business um, or any other active business. Like if someone has something not related to real estate, um, there are somewhat simpler things that will work. So for instance, having a, a C-Corp or an LLC taking the C-election owned by a Canadian hold co, um, oftentimes that's sufficient and it works for taxes. Um, especially if there's no like syndication involved where you don't have other partners. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes those ones can be a little more streamlined. Um, so I would actually set this up differently depending on what the person's business is specifically. And you just mentioned active. Um, so you, you mentioned that passive income would be just a, a, a rental property um, and an active would be the flipping. What is there anything else that Canadians do down there that we can consider to active? So even something like an Airbnb, which takes a fair bit of work, usually doesn't rise to the level of active in the eyes of CRA and the IRS. Um, it's okay. still typically considered passive. Now, at past a certain point, though, it could pass that. Like, let's say you had almost like a mini resort and there were services and there were employees. At this point, you're almost thinking like a motel or maybe a very large inn or something like mm -hmm. that, um, where there is more services and employees and things like that. Uh, those can start to be considered active businesses. Okay. So a, a, a really interesting example, that would be something like, uh, you know, um, a retirement home or something like that. Um, you know, that's it's it involves rent, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so the, things like that are typically considered active. So for from a tax perspective, would people be more, uh, in, you know, taxed, you know, Maybe I word try to word this rightly, correctly. Um, but if someone was like trying to get the best uh, tax rates and tax advantages, would it be better to be considered active or passive? Active, <laughs> um, especially right now because of the FAPI, uh, the FAPI tax regime in Canada. Um, active business doesn't have to deal with that. Um, so there are some other things you can do to mitigate that or other circumstances like relatively large syndications, more than 10 people, they wouldn't have to, if you own less than 10%, you wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, so there's other ways you can be involved in what would be considered passive without having to deal with that. But if you want to just sort of avoid it altogether, um, sticking to the more active side is definitely more tax efficient and easier to manage tax wise. Okay. Now, with that said, it has to work for your lifestyle, too. We don't want to let the the tail wag the dog too hard by doing everything for tax purposes. You know, you have to become an expert on how to make the money first. <laughs> so, you know, don't 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 do something you're totally unfamiliar with just because it's a little bit few points better on tax. Um, even if it's significantly better, you have to make the money first. Right? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, and since we're talking about Airbnbs, um, I'll, I'll just mention a point for people who keep uh, still have Canadian properties. Um, the big change this year uh, is that Canada Revenue Agency has some additional provisions where if you have an Airbnb um, in an area where you're not allowed to have one or in an area where you're supposed to have a license and you don't have the license, um, they can actually deny all your expenses on your Airbnb here in Canada. So, <laughs> so yeah, so they're essentially acting... Um, at the behest of the provinces and the municipalities and so on to give some of that legislation some extra teeth. Um, so essentially they're acting as, you know, a, a bulldog or a guard dog for that issue. Um, so 
There's a yeah. lot of different strategies you can try to use to reorganize this, but I would su suggest that like if you if you are in an area that simply requires a license and you can get one easily, get one. Um, just because that's a lot of tax advantage to throw away just by not having a license, you know, which in many municipalities they're at least affordable and relatively easy to get. That's a good tip. <laughs> yeah. And um couple more uh, things since we're on Airbnb as well. Um, one thing that causes a lot of uh, administrative difficulty is if people haven't filled out their Airbnb information correctly in the U.S. Um, it really is important that, you know, if it's in a corp, make sure you've got the right corp EIN number in there. If there's two partners, make sure you've both got your ITINs or your social security numbers in there because... Airbnb is going to do the tax slips according to what's in there. And so if it's if the tax slip gets produced with only one name on it, um, and then we write, we can work with that issue by writing a letter to the IRS, you know, showing the breakdown and so on. But it takes the IRS a very long time to sort of manually correct that on their back end. Um, so if you can get a good, correct slip from Airbnb uh, in the first place, you're going to save yourself a very long wait. Um, because I, I've seen that issue as well take six to 10 months to work itself out, you know, and, and if somebody's waiting, if there's been withholding taxes and they're kind of waiting to get their refund, um, the IRS also sends out notices of assessment in the meantime. They'll say, well, we agree with the income and expense part. Okay, fine. But we don't see your withholding tax. So pay us the 10 grand or whatever it is, right? And they, they keep sending notices and it's it's intimidating, right? People don't like getting notices from the IRS saying that they owe lots of money, even though it's already been withheld and they just can't put two and two together because uh -huh. the tax because the tax slip on the back end doesn't have your name and your ITIN number on it. Um, so it, the sooner you can get that resolved, the, the better, uh, in my opinion. And I can see how a lot of people could get this really messed up because say you set up an Airbnb account on airbnb.ca and you, you know, rented some houses in the past, um, back in Canada or wherever in the world. Um, and then you go to starting your own business in Airbnb. It has the tax information, like some of the stuff you've entered from before, or if you had a Canadian property, it might have your social insurance number in, in that, those fields. And then if you go start a business in the U S and you're using the same account, it, it would have that same information and not, and maybe taxing this completely yeah. wrong. Yeah. Or, or alternatively, um, if you don't put anything in there, then they're going to take the maximum of holdings. Right? So, <laughs> Uh, which is 30%, right? So sometimes just by not having your ITIN, you know, sometimes people will go in a different order here and they'll go like buy a property, then set up the corp, then try to get their ITIN, then set up their Airbnb. And they're already on Airbnb before they've got any of these entities and ITINs and EIN numbers. Well, the one thing you're going to face right away is Airbnb is required to take 30% off of your, as a withholding, uh, while you're waiting for your ITIN or your EIN number. So um, so, so especially if someone's counting on that cash flow to make the mortgage payments, that can be a surprise, right? And it can take uh, several weeks to get that resolved. And like, just sort of standard getting an ITIN is maybe six to eight weeks. Uh, EINs can be a little faster for entities. So um, again, an additional reason maybe to have the LP LLC structure there. Um, but yeah, definitely, if you can do this in the planned order, then uh, you'll save yourself some headaches there if you're doing an Airbnb in the US. Makes a lot of sense. What other things should people not do? 
Um, or should do. <laughs> sure. We're doing good with the what not to do today. That'd be a good theme for So a uh, couple other things related to that is sometimes I get asked about personal usage of properties because uh, sometimes, you know, people do buy one in a nice area and they'd like to go for, you know, some vacation and so on. So you should track your personal use days, um, but also track your maintenance days because you're entitled to a certain number of maintenance days, depending which has a, there's a calculation where you have it in relation to the fair market value as well. Um, but a safe standard to use is two weeks. Um, if you rent it out a lot, if there's a lot of fair market value days, uh, then you can go a little higher, but um, you know, you're entitled to some maintenance days and any day where you're doing some maintenance counts as a maintenance day. So, um, you know, definitely if you're down there fixing a few things, checking stuff out, replacing a television, whatever you're, you know, whatever you happen to be doing, um, you know, you can get a little bit more tax advantage there by doing some maintenance and sort of mixing some business with pleasure there, so to speak. Um, if you take more than 14 um, or more than the allotted amount, if it's higher, um, they can start curtailing your uh, expenses. So, you know, forcing you to prorate those down or even avoid some. So um, that's just kind of something to keep in mind. Um which is kind of interesting in the sense that if you have more properties, it opens up more opportunities for that, right? Because you spend maybe a few on one, a few at another. And so good reason to buy a few more properties uh, if you've been thinking about it, right? Yeah. And from anything, because I, mean, I, I work with Chris, so, um, you know, it would if you ever got audited on this whole thing, it would be best to have some receipts to show dates and times and, um, you know, purchases that you had to make, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's fixing stuff, you know, like you said, placing a TV, you know, have some, something to just, you know, to, it's just, if you have that in place and you've documented it, it's going to be a lot easier for yourself if you ever get into a situation where they, they're not, they don't believe you. Yeah. And pictures. And I mean, um, you know, we've all got our phones in our pocket. It's not too hard anymore to take a high quality picture. Um, and that can serve in many different things, you know, before and afters of a renovation, um, look great in a portfolio. If there's issues with contractors um, and things being damaged or not fulfilled or whatever, you know, taking pictures of progress on a job um, can come in handy for liability purposes. If the IRS wants more proof of what was done, uh, it can be that. Uh, with the CRA and the IRS, you can get into issues of, well, was this a renovation or was it a repair? So having some before and after pics um, can help you with that. So, I mean, there's just there's an unlimited number of good reasons why why it's good to have some pictures as well to go along with your receipts. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Do we get to the end of the list or do you have some more what not to do? Um, I think that's pretty much it for that. Um, that's probably a good place to stop. Um, <laughs> just because the other one, the rest of what I have here is like, your power of attorney, travel insurance, just sort of a, like a little potpourri kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we'll, we'll we'll stop this there, and because that's how I was kind of thinking, just from what we were discussing before we started. Um, <clears throat> so Chris, um, like always, tons of value. I think uh, uh, this one might get re-listened to a couple times by some people. Um, they might get some uh, just to go through and like, what did he say there? Or <laughs> write some notes the second time. Um, but if, if people wanted to get a hold of you, they wanted to work with you. Uh, how do they how do they contact your company? 
so you can call into our front desk to make an appointment. We offer a free consultation just so we can get to know you and see what you've got going on and express how we can help you with your real estate journey uh, or with any other cross-border issue you're dealing with. And uh, you can also go to our website, leapact.ca, and use our web contact form, and someone will get back to you and set up an appointment. Awesome. Well, like always, thanks for coming on the show, Chris. And uh, for people listening, uh, we are planning to schedule Chris to come back to talk about a, a pile more topics. And if you have topics or questions you have, uh, do email me, and I will uh, I'll make sure I ask them. <laughs> thanks again for having me, Glenn. Thanks, everyone. That was a nice video. Bye.